Well, welcome to Mastermind. I'm here with my friend Chris, and Chris is a therapist, but also a Horizon attender and a greeter, and you brought many, many people to the church over the years and found some of the CDs and teachings we've done have been helpful, even in your therapy. How has these types of teaching, reflecting on spiritual truth and community, helped people find freedom? Well, it's helped many people because it needs to be reinforced. I was talking about grooves, and we have a groove, and let's say it's a negative groove. I'm not worthy, but I want to start believing I am worthy, but I need reinforcement. I need to hear others that maybe have struggled with the same thing. It needs stimulation. I need definitely inspiration, and it's why I encourage people, because we can't do it alone. We need inspiration from the outside. What better place to get inspiration than coming to church? Well, and I think that's the topic we're going to talk about today, which is you're putting yourself under the authority of something else. Because I think for some people, um, they put themselves under the authority of doing whatever they want. And so many people think, if I could just do whatever I want, I'd be free. And you're like, no, all the people I know who did whatever they want, you know, destroyed their life. You know, they gave in to their freedom and they got enslaved to lust or they got enslaved to anger. They got enslaved to materialism. The Bible offers a really unique scenario here because it says, in the same way, a, a musician, for example, you want to be a great musician, you got to submit to the authority of learning for years, limiting your freedom in order to practice your scales, right? You put yourself under the authority of the music in order to become a free musician. If I'm an athlete, I spent years and years, you know, practicing shooting baskets or, or for me, volleyball, smacking volleyball. I put myself under the authority of something and I actually became free to become the best version of myself. I think that's what God's doing the same way. Like you mentioned, when you put people in your life, it's like you're under their authority. I'm going to let you speak into my life. Right, right now I'm speaking into my life, good or bad, but I'm going to let other people communicate love to me. And imagine a God who made the world, the universe. I'm going to put myself under his authority, and I'm going to allow him to speak to me. I'm going to believe what he says about me. I'm going to believe what he says is true, and it's going to fill me up. How have you seen maybe the church aspect in people's life be filled up by understanding that uh, God has a meaning in their life. They're much more open, open for new ideas, new ways to look at things. Um, they're open to accept themselves where maybe they couldn't before because now the way it's based from God that we are accepted. Christ has proved that to us. We don't have to earn it. And that is so big in people's lives because they think they have to earn, they have to do, they have to perform, they have to do certain things. And only by going to church have I been able, as a therapist, honestly, to be able to get that through to people. Well, I think that's, you know, the Bible describes that as grace, or we call it acceptance, we call it love. That's the idea that you can, you know, know the most important voice in the world um, because we are what the most important voice in the world says about us. And so we put ourselves under the authority of what our mom said to us 20 years ago, what a coach said to us 10 years ago, or what you know, our spouse says about us, good or bad, uh, what our work says about us. But imagine putting yourself under the authority of what the most powerful being in the universe says about you, your own creator. Imagine that creator says you are valuable, um, you are meaningful, not because of what you own or, or what you do or what your quarterly results were, but because you're mine. I mean, that's just so powerful. And I think you see it easier maybe with your kids because with your kids, they say, you know, I don't have to listen to your rules around here. I'm, I'm going to get out of my own and do my own thing. And you're like, well, listen, you got to learn to be under authority because it may not be my authority, but it will be the landlord's authority or the government's authority. The so, right. So, so at some point, 
this is actually important. And same way a musician submits to the music, an athlete submits to the skills of the game. Uh, when we uh, submit to the authority of God, it actually allows us to become the very best version of ourselves. Yeah, that's what God wants for us. So in Mastermind today, we're going to look at how authority leads to freedom. Man, that guy had some good stuff to say up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, I do want to say Happy Father's Day. And I think one of the things our, our fathers taught us well is for many of us, we look back at our fathers and they taught us how to live under the authority, what it means to love a woman, what it means to love our kids, what it means to provide for our family. For some of us, uh, discipline even came from our fathers and learning, hey, that's right, that's wrong. Hey, that's going to cause pain if you do that. And, and we did stumble and fall. How many of us had our dads who kind of picked us back up and, and said, all right, let's learn some lessons here. Let's keep going. Sometimes the men in our life taught us about authority as coaches. Sometimes they were mentors. Sometimes they were our first boss. And sometimes they were a dad. And my dad was a bit of a maverick, so my dad, I think he's still, he's 70, whatever he is now, and he's like uh, his 50th year going to Sturgis. My dad's got this real wild at heart where he's always pushing us to experience life and, and to try new things and try dangerous things. And actually, there's some psychological research that shows that um, dangerous play is something that uh, dads particularly encourage. And where moms are trying to keep you from dying, dads are trying to have you experience life. And that uh, that dangerous play is actually absolutely fundamental to a child's development. That often it's children who are raised with fathers who engage in dangerous play that they have less anxiety and less fear because they face things that were a little fearful and they overcame it. So dads have this really unique realm that we play that is psychologically benefit and, and, and impacts all of us in unique ways. They teach us what's right and wrong, but also teach us how to challenge ourselves and how to face fear and how to be courageous. And specifically what freedom looks like. So today when we think about authority, I want to talk about freedom because I think for many of us, uh, how we think about freedom can transform how we behave in different ways. In the series Mastermind, we've looked at a verse from Romans, a little letter that Paul wrote to a group of Romans uh, who were in the church. And he said, don't be conformed to certain ways of thinking, the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by mastering your mind, thinking differently about things. And so the question when it comes to authority, for example, as, as I referenced in that video, I think for many of us, we grew up with an idea that, that if we could just do whatever we wanted, we'd be free. It's almost like, you know, if I give my green, myself green lights for everything, green light to my appetites, green light to my wants, green light to my, to my desires, I will be red, white, and blue free, right? I'll be free. And when I come to a situation, if I can serve myself, serve my needs, get my goals met, green lights to everything... I will be red, white, and blue free. And we think that this is the pattern for living a successful life. And God says, I've, I've got a different way to think about freedom. And actually, the colors are all totally different. And God proposes to us that green lights to all of our appetites isn't going to lead to red, white, and blue freedom. It's going to lead to black and blue freedom, right? Oh, my goodness. When you let your anger control you, it's amazing how you're not set up for good relationships. It's amazing when, when, you, when you think uh, giving in to all of your pleasures, all of your desires, what sounds like freedom sounds more like self-centeredness. And it's not red, white, and blue freedom, it's black and blue freedom, and we end up not becoming the best version of ourselves. And though intuitively it might seem like green light to serve self, serve self, serve self, make it about me, it doesn't lead to black and white freedom. That, that's the kind of thing that destroys marriages and destroys friendships and destroys 
workplaces, when everyone does whatever they want and not what maybe is best for the whole team. And it doesn't lead, again, to black, white, and blue freedom. It, I mean, to, it leads not to red, white, and blue freedom, but black and blue freedom, which is, man, they lost their job because they couldn't adapt and they couldn't come under the authority of the team mission or the team vision. God says, instead, I want you to think about it a little bit differently, that maybe the code to thinking about authority and freedom is when you come to a situation, don't green light everything you've ever thought or felt. Don't always follow your heart. Yellow light. Ask yourself, is this decision right or wrong? Is this the right thing or wrong thing? And when you choose to do the right thing, you're going to find a, a red, white, and blue freedom. It's a different kind of freedom. A freedom that comes from doing what is right and doesn't lead to that kind of black and blue freedom of bondage. But you've got to take a moment before you do whatever you want and say, no, I want to submit myself to what's right and what's good here. That's where real freedom comes from. And before I say, how do I serve myself, why don't I instead pause for a moment, turn on the yellow light and say, instead of just serving myself, how could I in this situation serve God and serve others and serve myself, placing myself third? Just that framework of not green lighting all of your own needs, but green lighting God and others and then yourself, that can lead to a, a different kind of freedom, the true red, white, and blue freedom that you're looking for all along. Now, it seems counterintuitive, and yet it's often what our fathers taught us. I mean, how many dads have pulled aside their young men and say, if you follow all your appetites and green light everything, I'm telling you, it's not going to end the way you think. When I get out of here, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Tell that to your landlord. Oh, yeah? Tell that to the, to the governor. Tell that to the police officer, right? You're trying as a father to talk about a different way of thinking. And so Paul's doing that in this little letter to the Romans. And he's talking about the difference between a mature mindset and an immature mindset. And what he's going to share is going to be things that you're going to feel like, this sounds like the wisdom of my granddad, the wisdom of, of my father. What is a mature mindset versus an immature mindset? Well, an immature thinking believes freedom is doing whatever I want. If I just green light all my desires and appetites, I'll be happy. Mature freedom is different. It's that it believes that freedom is adapting what I want, what I choose to do, to whatever is right and whatever is loving in the situation. That real freedom over the long term comes from adapting my wants, desires, and decisions to what is right and what is loving. And that creates the best kind of marriages. Think of it this way. I mean, imagine a marriage where one person only does whatever they want, and they're married to somebody else who only does what they want. Does this sound like a recipe for adapting and, and a partnership, or does this sound like hell on earth? All right, this sounds like a, a quick pass to, to divorce. Imagine a relationship or a team environment where you got one team member who says, no, we're doing it my way or the highway. How long are you going to keep them on your staff when they never adapt to the team and to the, to the needs of the team or the needs of the mission? Right? It eventually causes chaos. Mature thinking is, hey, I want to adapt my strengths, my desires, and my preferences to what's best for the team. But that's going to require a new mindset, a new way of thinking. And if you know the story of uh, Jesse Itzel, he's a founder of a jet company, uh, Marquise Jet, and he was training for a marathon. And in training for the marathon, he had the best coaches and the best training and all the gear, and he and his buddies all, you know, matching clothes, matching shoes, the best of everything, trained for months, ready to go. And when they're about to train, they saw this guy walk by who looks like he's never trained a day in his life. He's not dressed in anything remotely uh, 
uh, appropriate for a marathon. And quite frankly, they said they thought he was a homeless man. Crummy old shoes, crummy old outfit, unkept beard. And they're like, well, I guess we'll blow past him pretty quickly. So they start running the marathon, and they're way ahead. And about, you know, 20 minutes into the marathon, this homeless guy starts catching up to them. They can see him back there, big old beard. And pretty soon, he catches up to them and passes them. And they went from joking about this and making fun of this to like, well, he's going to wear himself out. You know, he's sprint too far. We know how to pace ourselves. We've done the training. Well, sure enough, not only did they not catch up with him in the next 20 minutes, but by the time the whole marathon was over, they never caught up with him, and he beat their time by whatever it was, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, I can't remember. It was a huge number. And they're shell-shocked. So he eats humble pie, and he goes over, and he says to, to this guy, he says, how in the world did you do that? He says, well, I'm a Navy SEAL. Well, that'll help. He said, and all the things you've thought are important, how you dress, how you, that's, that's all fine. He said, but that's not really how you get it done. He said, we Navy SEALs know something you don't, which is we submit ourselves to the 40% rule. The 40% rule. He says, I will pay you to come and train me. So this guy comes to his house and begins to train him. And so he's doing pull-ups. He does however many pull-ups he can do. And he says, all right, I'm done. He's like, no, no, no. All the research we've done says that when your body thinks you're done, you actually have 40% more capacity. But your body's protecting you to keep some energy and stuff. You can push yourself. And he kept pushing him to do 40% more chin-ups than he did, 40% of whatever he did. And he suddenly goes, I don't feel this is true. I don't feel this is right. But I'm going to trust or put myself under the authority of this Navy SEAL I saw do these amazing things. And sure enough, he was able to increase his capacity on speed and chin-ups by 40%. Something he had made fun of, that guy doesn't dress right, became a source of strength. I think often religion and God and Christianity feels that way. It feels like this old, archaic, out-of-touch thing. Why would I want to submit to that? Why would I put myself under the authority of that? And some of the teachings seem crazy. But it's like the 40% rule. There's a new mindset that can help you find the best kind of freedom and the best kind of life. So let me give you three aspects of, of that mindset that we can have in that mature mindset. The first thing is that mature thinking... When you say, I put on that mature thinking, you begin to think about it in that way. Mature people know how to subordinate their preferences. Immature people do not know how to subordinate their preferences. It's their way or the highway. It's black or white. It's very polarized thinking. And so Paul is talking to a group of Christians living in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was very hostile toward the Christians. And he's trying to teach them how to respect authority, even authority they don't like and don't prefer. He says, guys, you're going to have to realize that there's things we prefer to do that we're going to have to subordinate to the overall rule of what God's put in place. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. God puts authority in your life to teach you humility. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, when you resist authority from your dad, from your coach, from your teammate, from your company, from your country, you're actually resisting something God put in place, an ordinance of God to shape you and teach you some things. And when you do that, you bring judgment on yourself. What does that mean? Well, without getting religious at all, just imagine a family reunion, right? you got some at your family reunion who is absolutely committed to telling it how it is right? Putting people in their place. And when you get around this person, they just can't help but to bring up inappropriate topics, 
They can't say it's a family reunion. It's probably not the best place to bring up politics. They got to bring it up because they got to tell people what's right and tell people what's wrong. They can't in any way subordinate their preferences to the environment. Do you want to hang out with that person at the family reunion? Does anyone want to hang out with them at the family reunion? No. Because it's, it's the immaturity that if I think it, I have to say it. I can't subordinate my preferences. Think of a marriage. Again, you got a marriage. And maybe you came in a marriage which I've got to be right. And you married somebody who's got to be right. How's that going to work out? See, bringing judgment on yourself, your soul does not flourish. Your relationships don't flourish when you, you don't adapt yourself to the environment and adapt yourself to the institution of marriage, for example. In fact, the word submission means to subordinate yourself to the mission. The mission of having a great marriage will require both of us to adapt our preferences to meet each other's needs. That's the idea he's getting at here. That parents, that fathers, that governments are designed by God to teach us how to subordinate our preferences to something else. And we had to do that in our first job, and many of us got our, our learnings. We learned a lot from our bad bosses, and we learned a lot from our good bosses. We learned how to subordinate ourselves to the overall mission. And he goes on to say, you know, when you're out of control, you're actually in control of something. So look at that phrase he used again. He said, you know, I want every soul to be subject to governing authorities, to, to be under control. When you see somebody who's really angry, you know, we say, they're out of control. Well, they're not really out of control. They're in control of needing to be right. Right? Or they're in control of needing to be in control. When they feel out of control, they get all angry because they're subjected to or in submission to, I got to be right or I got to be in control. We're all controlled by something. We're all under the authority of something. The need to be right, the need to have our own way, the need to do our own thing. So the question is, what can we put ourselves under the authority of that makes us more free? And how can we use the structures of authority in our life to teach us what it means to be humble, what it means to, to adapt ourselves to other people? It's like, I don't know if you remember in January, I interviewed Boss Rutten here. He's an MMA fighter. And he said, you know, I was used to winning and beating everyone. And, and I realized before I got serious about faith in God, I realized that I was under the control of alcohol. And I didn't like the fact that something was controlling me. I, I could beat everything else, but not that. And I realized I couldn't get out of the control. My wife would tell me I was out of control. Some other people would tell me I was out of control. But I wasn't just out of control. I was in control of my alcohol. And I needed something else to be under the submission of. And when I put myself under the authority of God, I was able to then not be under the authority of, of having alcohol control my life and anger control my life. That's what God wants for you. He wants freedom by saying, don't do whatever you want, but if you submit yourself or put yourself under what's right and what's good, under my control, it's going to make you freer, a red, white, and blue kind of freedom that lets you be the best version of yourself. So first, mature people know how to subordinate their preferences and use the structure in their life to create that. The second thing we see is that mature thinking, a mature person wants to be a joy to those who lead them. Really does. Wants to be a joy. You get kind of an immature employee, they want to do their own thing, tell it how it is, right? They got to kind of grow up a little bit. But, but a mature people are motivated internally, not, not just externally, I'm doing it because the camera's watching, I'm doing it because my boss is in the room, but they're internally motivated to say, I want to please the people around me. And here's how he says that here as he's, he's writing in, in Romans chapter 13. 
He says, rulers, God puts rulers in your life. Again, those were government rulers, those were family rulers, those were uh, all the different you know, authorities, landlords and things like that. But God puts rulers in your life, um, not as a terror to good works, but to evil. You know, governments are put in place, authorities put in place to, to enhance good and to, and to uh, punish evil. That's, a, that's designed for. So do what you want. You don't have to be afraid of the authority. Just do what is good. First thing you ask yourself when you come to a decision is, is this good or bad? If you're doing what is good, you don't have to be afraid. You're going to receive praise from the same. The structures in your life, the authorities in your life are designed like God's minister to you. God's you know, aiming of you. It's for your good. Therefore, you must submit or put yourself under the mission of becoming that kind of person. And when you do that, not only are you not going to face some wrath, but you're going to have your conscience clear because you're doing the right thing. Now keep track of what you're doing wrong. So kind of quick, quick, three quick highlights he says here. If you're internally motivated to be a joy to the people who lead you, right? Don't you want employees like that? Don't you think your boss wants employees like that? People say, what else can I do? How can I be a benefit? Uh, how else can I serve here? I'm internally motivated to do hard work, right? Th these are the best kind of workers and the best kind of people. People are internally motivated. Number one, it saves you from bad consequences, right? Because when there's, uh, the government's been put in place to punish bad consequences, so if you do the right thing, you save yourself some pain. Number two, if you're internally motivated, it brings you praise from your leaders. Man, I love that work ethic. Well, I love how you went the extra mile. I love how you tried to help out the other department, not just say I do my part, but not your part. You get praise from your leaders. And number three, your motivation, your motivation replaces fear, oh my goodness, I'm going to get caught, to love and respect. Man, I, I love my parents. I love my dad. I love this company. I trust them that even though we're not doing what I prefer, I trust that they know best for me. We had an example of that about 12 years ago. So about 12 years ago, I had written this book called Godonomics. And I had the manuscript in place. And uh, through a whole series of events, uh, kind of a, a celebrity in our country and I had connected. I was meeting with him up in New York. And we were going to do the book together. And he had all of the TV shows, all of the books, all of the mechanisms to make what he said this is going to be the most uh, debated book on late night television and everything else with our partnership. So I came back to our, our elder board, and we were talking to it as a team, and I said, hey, I feel like this is an incredible opportunity, and uh, we talked about it, and as we talked about it, we went the pros and the cons, and, you know, associating with somebody else, you know, their reputation gets associated with your reputation, even if it's not. Um, I was trying to build a case that God is, you know, pro-handling your money well and pro-free uh, enterprise, and capitalism's not just a good idea, it's God's idea. Well, as we were kind of kicking this thing around, we just had different opinions, and it was just a very healthy, good conversation. I ultimately felt like the pros outweighed the cons. And some of my friends and co-leaders thought that the cons outweighed the pros. So after a long conversation on that, my real struggle was I felt like God was encouraging me to do this and to do it that way. And the team that was around me who loved me and cared about me was looking at more objectively, right? Because I couldn't be objective because I was in it. And I said, Chad, I really don't think this is the wisest thing. I'm like, man, I want to... I want to please the people who, who lead me, but I also want to please God. And so I was reading through Thessalonians one day, and there's this great verse, and the verse says this. It says, this is the will of God. I'm like, well, this sounds good. <laughs> this is pretty clear. That you submit to those in authority over you. Oh. So I remember uh, this great conversation we had that day. I said, hey, guys, if I stand before God one day, 
and I say, listen, I gave my best pitch. I thought this was a good idea, but I trusted that the people you put in my life can see things more clearly than me. And God says, hey, Chad, I told you to do it. Why didn't you do it? <laughs> Would you be comfortable on that day when I stand before God saying, hey, we prayed about it, we saw it more objectively, and we asked Chad not to do it, and he submitted to it. They said, yeah, we would do that. That's how strongly we feel about this. And it was just a great conversation. I remember as I was praying through this, I said, you know what? I don't just want to submit to this. I want to trust the people around me. I want to love the people around me. And I want to submit joyfully to even something I wouldn't have preferred. And that was 12 years ago. And it was a great decision. It solidified our trust as an organization, as a team. And ultimately, the book got published. Did not do nearly as well. <laughs> as it probably could have, but it kept me from, if nothing less, 10 years has become an increased polarizing political environment, and it probably saved me and the church from being politicized because of submitting myself to people I was under authority to. So, there's a lot of times I didn't do that. My last church, there's several times I didn't submit. I actually wrote several letters to my old boss um, when I came here and realized there were areas that he had asked me to do, A, B, and C, and I had not done them. And I didn't do them with a great attitude, and I thought I knew better than him. And I wrote a nice letter. Um, hey, David, I know we disagree on a lot of things, but I know I made your, 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 your life harder than it needed to be. And I just want to admit to you that I, I wasn't real teachable in this area or this area or that area. And while I'm writing this thing, I'm thinking, but he wasn't teachable in this area and this area and this area. But I went, you know what? I can't own what he did wrong, but I can own what I did wrong. So sometimes... Um, these mindsets, this mature mindset, I'm going to subordinate my preferences. And number two, how can I be a joy to those who lead me? These come together. Then there's a third aspect here of kind of mature thinking that I think, again, grandpa taught us this, our coaches taught us this, and God teaches us this. And is that mature people make their appetites serve what is right and what is loving. It's not, I want to do whatever I want. That's your appetites. No, no, no. It's first I say, what is right and good? And I want my appetites, my freedom to serve what is good and right. I want my appetites to serve, my freedom to serve what is loving. If I ask those questions, what's the good thing to do and submit myself to that? What's the loving thing to do and submit myself to that? It can actually lead to a different kind of freedom. Not that black and blue freedom, but a red, white, and blue freedom in your life. Here's how Paul kind of continues to explain that. He says, it's high time to awake out of sleep. That old, old mindset, do whatever you want, and it's going to make you into who you want to be. Let's, let's awake out of that. Let's get away from that immature thinking and move on to more mature thinking. Let us walk properly. Let's live this way. Let's behave this way. Let's live properly. As in the day, don't, don't live like green lights to your rivalry. I got to be right all the time to your drunkenness. I got to medicate my pain or, or just indulge all the time. Don't give in to lewdness or, or your lust, your lust for power, your lust for pleasure, strife and envy. You might think greenlining all that stuff and your appetites is going to lead to freedom. I'm telling you, it's not red, white, and blue. It's black and blue freedom. I tell you, the folks I know who are in addictions or everyone knows they're in addictions except them, whether it's addictions to gossip or addictions to, to, to pornography or uh, addicted to lust, whatever it is, addicted to anger. They thought doing whatever they wanted, giving into all their appetites and following their heart would lead to freedom, but it led to black and blue freedom and it cost them a couple of marriages and it cost them a lot of money. <laughs> and I want to propose to you that God 
He wants a, a better freedom for you, a, 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 a more significant way of living for you, a mature living that says, I want to subordinate my appetites to, to what is good and what is loving. That's what he's going on here. So don't, don't misunderstand. He says, you gotta, in order to do this, you've got to put on Christ, to which you're like, where did Jesus come from in all this? Like, mature thinking, immature thinking, you had me. What, what? Put on Jesus Christ and put, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's a really wordy, religious way of saying, what does Jesus have to do with this? This is what's unique about Christianity. You may not believe in God or Jesus in the Bible. You may not believe it really happened. But let me tell you why, if you did believe, why it would change your mindset. And why he puts that right here. Jesus had all authority, as the Bible describes, over all of the universe as part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He chose to subordinate his preferences, being in a peaceful place, a joyful place, a pain-free place, and as a multidimensional being. He subordinated himself to become a human being, immediately compressing everything he was into a human body, giving up for a time his ability to be outside of time and space. I don't know what that is like, but it must be painful. It would be like you and I saying we're going to go from being three-dimensional beings to being a two-dimensional being. Imagine I say you're going to spend the, the next 30 years living on this one page, two dimensions. That would be painful. That would be restricting of your freedom, wouldn't it? Man, I, I used to like the three-dimensional. I can move X, Y, and Z. Now I only have X and I have Y. I can't do Z anymore. Jesus reduced his freedom in order to serve you and to serve me to love you and to love me. He reduced his freedom and adapted his preferences for you and I. He finds himself in the wilderness and he's got evil tempting him and he's got a chance to give in to his temptations. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, instead of my preference would be to eat some bread, I'm going to resist evil and I'm going to instead, I'm going to go without food for a little bit. And he's given the lust for all the kingdoms of the world are offered to him by evil. And, and he says, you can have all this if you worship me. But he, he resists that temptation. Then he finds himself before going to the cross in a garden. And he's bowing down on his knees and he says, oh, Father, please, please, please take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to have nails pounded into my hands and into my feet. I don't want to be separated from you. Please, pleaded three times, take this cup from me. That's his preference. No pain, no crucifixion, no separation. But, not my will, but yours be done. He subordinated his preferences to the bigger mission of God. He wanted to be a joy to his heavenly father and his heavenly father's plan. He chose to do what was right, forgiving the people who had betrayed him, human beings, loving them when they weren't real lovable and didn't even want his help when they were crucifying him. And that's why Paul drops that in here, because he's saying, I want you to have that be your motivation. You can adapt to your spouse or to your boss or to your, uh, uh, your, your friend, because God did it for you. And if God did it for you, if God did this for you, then maybe you could do it for somebody else. And that becomes the motivation. It's a new type of freedom. It's a new way of thinking. Reminds me of uh, that guy named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist. He began to develop his idea of searching for meaning in, in human beings. 
about the time of Sigmund Freud. In fact, he knew Sigmund Freud, and they began to dialogue together. And Sigmund Freud, in his psychotherapy, was very impressed with Vic Victor uh, Frankl and all of his work on basically cognitive therapy, how we think. Well, as he was kind of processing through this, uh, he started noticing in Vienna, Austria, where he was from, that the students during uh, the time where they would get their grades, the suicide rate would go up, pretty high suicide rate whenever it was time for report cards to come out in the colleges. So he began to proactively, as a, a person who was a therapist uh, from a Jewish family there in uh, Vienna, he began to do counseling the week before tests came out, the day of tests, and the week after. And he was able to reduce the death rate and suicide rate down to zero just by intentionally helping people think about how to think about their grades. How do I serve people who are hurting? How do I help people? Well, he ends up moving from there to helping uh, women depression suicide rates in Vienna and gets that dropped down significantly. And then the Nazis begin to grow in power. Because of his work as a psychologist, he got a lottery number that allowed him to go to America so he could escape any potential danger with the Nazis. And he's got this moral conscious dilemma what do I do? I can be free, but my mom and dad aren't going to be free. They're going to be staying here. Mom and dad are like, well, just go. We'd rather have you be free than all of us die. And he's really wrestling with his conscience. What does it mean for me to exercise my authority and to serve my wife, serve my, 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 my parents during this? He was rummaging around their house that day, and he found a piece of rock. The Nazis had already been coming through town just blasting things. There's a, a copy of the Ten Commandments up in the city square that they tore down and trashed. Well, his dad happened to pick up this one little piece a few weeks earlier and set it in their house. And as Viktor Frankl was trying to seek God's will for this, he picked up this little piece of rock, didn't know what it was, and it was a, a chunk of the Ten Commandments, and it said, honor your father and mother. And so he refused to take the free pass to go to America. Instead, he stayed with his parents, and he would eventually find himself in Auschwitz and concentration camps with his parents, where people were lined up to the gas chamber or lined up to workloads. And it was there, he again said, well, how do I serve God in the concentration camp? And as a therapist, he began to help people figure out how they're going to process all the things they couldn't control with the Nazis and with the concentration camp and losing their loved ones right before them. He said one of the ways he dealt with the pain and the agony is he kept serving other people and thinking about how he could continue to serve. He said, while I was walking through the, the concentration camp, I would imagine myself in Vienna giving a lecture about man's search for meaning. And I would just picture thousands of people there and, and me talking about the mindset you need to have to endure the, the, the gas chambers in a concentration camp. He said, and as I was lecturing, it was, the, it was that way of kind of reminding myself to have the right mindset. And here's what I realized, he said, I realized that the Nazis could take everything away from us, but the one thing they couldn't take away was our choice on how to respond to our circumstances. And I chose to not let them take away my dignity and not let them take away my even dignity in approaching death. Well, shockingly, he was one of the few ones that made it through the camp and didn't die. And years later, he writes a book called The Search, Man's Search for Meaning. And the chapter he writes in there is the chapter he delivered to his imaginary audience while in the death chamber in the concentration camp about how to have a mindset that serves other people even in the gas chambers, how to help other people, serve other people, and do the right thing even when everything around you is doing the wrong thing. It's really a powerful picture of God 
For God didn't have to come to earth. Jesus could have said, hey, I'm out of here. But he chose not to escape, but to stay in the gas chamber of his day called the crucifixion, to endure pain and agony for us, to teach us how to think in a world filled with agony and pain and difficulty and wrongdoing. How can we find the real freedom of our own humanity and our own dignity? That's my challenge for you. And I think that's where Paul kind of ends here. He says, if you want this type of mindset... If you want this kind of mature thinking that leads to freedom, it comes from God and, and his expression through Jesus. So what does it look like you to submit yourself to love? Mature thinking means putting yourself or living under these three loves. How can I love God? How can I love others? And then how can I love myself in the situation? Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God, then love your neighbor as yourself. Three loves. Every situation you come to, how can I love God? What he says is right and wrong. How do I love other people? And how do I love myself? When you submit yourself to that three things, and that's why after this whole talk on like government and authority, he ends by saying, owe no one anything except to love one another. For when you love one another, you fulfilled the law. There's something so powerful about a heavenly father who would adapt himself to us. It's inspiring when our grandfathers did it, when our fathers did it, when they taught us what is right and wrong, what is authority, it, it, it welled up within us. It reminds me, if you know, in the 1980s, there's a famous actor by the name of Rick Moranis. He was in Revenge of the Nerds. He was in, uh, let's see, uh, Ghostbusters. Um, if you ever did uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie, Strange Brew, oh, how's it going, eh? Oh, take off. Rick Moranis was like top of his game, fame, money, contracts, everywhere. And his wife passed away. And he chose, for now it's been almost 40 years, to turn down almost every opportunity in business to be a dad. He said, the priority of being a father to my children who've lost their mom and to prioritize their, uh, my relationship with them, for them to know that they are my highest priority, comes over my career, comes over everything else. So he limited his freedom, limited his fame, limited everything to prioritize being a dad. And that's what the story of the Bible is about. A God who had all the fame, all the contracts, all access, and he gave it up to prioritize being a dad. It's almost like with Rick Moranis, honey, I shrunk the kids. He was in that. God is saying to you and I, honey, I shrunk myself. I shrunk myself down to a human being to teach you how God serves other people. Again, we just uh, love each one of you here. We thank all the, all the fathers and men here and the influence they've had in our lives and all those who are represented by those who are here in this room. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you could have represented yourself as anything, but you often use the, the image of a father, that you are a heavenly father. And we, Father, we, we are so thankful for the dads in our life, the fathers in our life, the way they shaped us, the way they pushed us, the way they mentored us, the way they taught us how to live and how to love. And Father, we just ask for every dad here who's feeling discouraged because... As dads, we know all the mistakes we made too. God, that you, you were the perfect father and all your kids rebelled. <laughs> uh, we don't have to be perfect, Father, but we just want to be a reflection of the goodness of you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Happy Father's Day. Thank you for joining us today. And we'll see you next week as we continue our series. Thanks again.